0: What's that sound? That's the sweet sound of bacon. I like bacon. You like bacon. I like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. You like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. So, what is this? Biblical details, historical context that puts you in the action. And with that, let's get started. Okay, it's confession time, everybody. I easily judge others based upon their appearance, their poor life choices, and their unhealthy behaviors. I guess I'm sensitive to seeing the choices that others make, all the while raising the red flag of warning that tells me to stay away and move in another direction altogether. In short, I don't like what they believe, what they value, or how they behave. What's worse is I don't wish to have any dealings with them for fear that I will have to put up with their mess or allow it to have any negative influence on me. Let the name calling begin, I get it. Pig, bigot, whatever phobe. Or feel free to insert any other judgmental expletive that would best fit this description. I sound nasty, don't I? Not liking people based upon their behaviors and their bogus values, very judgmental in fact. Well, you're right. I'm guilty of this very issue. In a moment of candor, would you be so inclined to make the same confession? Is there anyone you can't tolerate? Maybe somebody like me. Do those who are biased, judgmental, and harsh towards the values you cherish the most get under your skin? They just rub you the wrong way, right? And you might even find yourself wishing if they would just understand things from my point of view, then they would understand how to live. The challenge comes when others become militant towards getting you to adopt their viewpoints. What starts out as an awareness campaign can often spiral down to an outright agenda. The pathway always leads to forced compliance, and when forced compliance becomes the norm, it's only a matter of time before the next rebellion starts up and begins to cycle through the next chain of repeatable actions. Isn't this at the heart of most domestic and national crises around the world at any given moment? I mean, in the end, here's kind of what we're saying. If you just do life my way, then we're going to get along great. This is humanity at its essence. I have a plan for your life, and so become like me and make me happy. Funny, this almost sounds like God's plan. Okay, you got me. This is God's plan. Except we're trying to play God, and quite frankly, we're not very good at it. And we wonder why so many around us tend to opt out of our plans. So what happens when our tendency towards judgmentalism, including our feeble attempts at playing God, get in the way of what God, the God of the universe, is trying to accomplish? Not only do I struggle with this, every character in scripture struggles with this, including Saul. So with that, let's go ahead and get right into the narrative. We're going to be picking it up in Acts chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. So do you think anyone is going to show... Saul looks at Barnabas to confirm their meeting time. Barnabas lets this question hang in the air as they turn a corner and move towards the residential part of town. Several others, headed in the same direction, wave hello as they pass by without interrupting their conversation. Saul looks around to discover they are all headed to the same house. "'We've done good work here this past year,' Barnabas exclaims. "'I'm so grateful to have you doing this with me. There's no way I could have carried this load myself.' Saul nods his head and laughs. (laughs) I didn't see this coming. To have not only a huge number of Gentiles come to faith, but to see so many backgrounds and ethnicities participate has been, well, I mean, it's been really exciting. I just can't help but think that they will launch from here, my friend. The world is gathered right here in Antioch, so when family members move out from here to their homelands, or maybe they have intense conversations with family members who come to visit, God's kingdom agenda is certain to flourish around the world. He pauses to reflect more. You know, God brought you back into my life at just the right moment. I'm just glad that you made the decision to join me, Barnabas responds. He then gestures to the swarm of people entering into the home. Do you think you made the right decision? Barnabas's question unexpectedly triggers a flurry of memories in Saul's mind. Thinking back to the day when Barnabas sought him out in Tarsus a year ago, Saul revisits those critical moments that would change the direction of his life. Saul! Nothing. Seeing him walk away from a cluster of merchant booths, Barnabas yells out and waves to gain Saul's attention. Saul! Still no response. He gets louder. "'Saul!' Hearing his name yelled out in the marketplace, Saul turns around and shades his eyes from the blinding sun. Barnabas moves closer at a clipped pace so as not to lose his find. "'Saul!' he yells again. Saul cranes his neck forward and steps towards the voice. Seeing a fully bearded man dressed in Hebrew garb straight out from Jerusalem was a fairly strange sight. Racking his brain, it finally comes to him. Barnabas? He says to no one in particular. Seeing the familiar face get closer, Saul asks, What are you doing here? The two embrace to say hello, and with extended arms, they look at one another. This is the second time you found me. Remembering how Barnabas did the same when he arrived in Jerusalem, shortly after his encounter with the risen Jesus, Saul teases, Man, I just can't get rid of you, can I? You seem to have a knack for this. You ever thought about detective work? Barnabas looks and laughs. Well, I'm just a glutton for punishment, I guess. The two hug again, and looking at Barnabas and inquiring, Saul asks, What are you doing here? Looking around the marketplace, Barnabas suggests, Hey, let's grab something to eat, and I'll share. Okay. Pointing to his booth, Saul says, That's my workshop over there. I need to run a quick errand, so why don't we meet over there? I'll close down, then we can go find something to eat. Seeing the direction with which Saul is pointing, Barnabas responds, Okay, those are your shelters over there? Yes, Saul replies, give me just a few minutes. A curious Barnabas wanders over to see the kind of work Saul does for a living. Knowing Saul in a much different context, Barnabas wonders exactly what he does for a trade. Hiding behind the merchandise belonging to another vendor, Barnabas sees a work area divided into sections of progress. He sees completed two foot by two foot panels nearly stacked in a well-organized set. To the right, Barnabas identifies a spindle connected to a liter of thread, and on the other end, a mess of goat hair matted together on a spiked brush. But towards the back of the work area, Barnabas stands in awe of what appears to be the making of a nomadic tent. Carefully stepping over the piles of activity, a fascinated Barnabas brushes his hand along the outside of the tent. Inspecting it even closer, he sees the meticulous threading that holds numerous panels together. He looks back at the stack pile of two-foot-by-two-foot two panels and sees how they are being used to piece together this larger puzzle. Let's go inside, Saul's voice abruptly announces. Startled, an adrenaline-fueled Barnabas takes a beat. Oh, Oh, yeah, let's do it. The door is perhaps one of the most important parts of this tent, Saul says while lifting the heavy flap and propping it up with a pole. In more nomadic cultures, the patriarch of a family, or even a king, will sit here in the shade of the door. From here he observes the world around him and engages with those in his community. The two walk in and Barnabas sees a passage to another part of the tent. Where does this go? He asks. Let's find out, Saul leads with a level of anticipation. The pole seems sturdy enough, Barnabas says, as he reaches his hand to feel the fabric of the inner walls. Passing through the doorway, Barnabas goes into the other room. Is this the bedroom, he asks. In most cases, this is the woman's chamber, Saul replies, though it's not uncommon to see each room leading to a next. They get larger, Barnabas asks. Oh heavens, yes, Saul says, much bigger. Depending on the nomadic tribe and the size of a family, these tents can become enormous, supporting many rooms. Some consider the size of the tent even as a status symbol. Saul laughs at the idea. You know, as different as human beings are, they all seem to have the same inner workings, don't they? Appreciating the insight, Barnabas looks at Saul and then up at the ceiling. Seeing the sun filter through the strands, he asks, So, I can see how this offers helpful shade during the day, but what do you do when it rains? Knowing where this question leads, Saul grabs Barnabas by the wrists and has him feel the fabric on the exterior wall. What do you feel? he asks. I'm guessing these are fibers you've spun from goat hair, Barnabas offers as he points towards the work area outside Every last one you feel, that's where the tedium sets in. Spinning thread from goat hair seems like it never ends, Saul replies. But goat hair has a wonderfully resilient quality about it. Upon contact with water, the goat hair fibers will expand and fill in any gaps that you currently see. With new appreciation for goats, Barnabas says, Wow, I had no idea. You're saying that this tent becomes fully waterproof? What happens when the wind stirs up? They seal up pretty quickly, Saul responds. "Well, not perfect, you'll find that goat hair is fairly resistant against wind gusts and even horizontal rain. Walking back towards the door, Saul shows an impressed Barnabas where a warming fire would be built inside next to the front door. Letting Barnabas out, Saul closes the flap behind him and says, Hey, I'm getting pretty hungry. You ready to grab something to eat? Pointing to the outside restaurant, only a stone's throw away, Saul says... They serve a mean hummus over there. I think you'll like it. I can monitor the shop from there and close up later. Besides, I would like to learn why you're here. Barnabas laughs at Saul's candor. Ever to the point, right? Saul laughs. Well, hey, you got me pegged, man. The shavings of lamb are carefully sliced off of the roast and into bowls prepared with rice and nuts. The steam from each bowl rises in front of them. Saul, using a more contemplative tone, Barnabas says... Tell me, you've been here for a few years now. Saul shakes his head in affirmation, and Barnabas goes on with a string of questions. You've made a life for yourself here. Have you connected with a local gathering of Christ followers? Are you married? I mean, I guess we really haven't been hugely in touch, so I'd love to hear what you're doing. A curious Saul wonders where this might be leading. It's been an interesting time for me, Barnabas. After spending time with you, Peter, and the others, and nearly getting killed for it, by the way, Saul laughs at this, I've had the time to process my experience in Jerusalem, in Damascus, and even amongst the Nabataeans, while trying to sort things out. Oh, Barnabas asks, okay, well, quite frankly, the corners of Saul's lips raise as he teases us out. I miss it, Barnabas laughs. You mean the nearly dying part, is that what you miss? Waving his arms from side to side, Saul says, no, that's not what I mean. He then starts laughing, and the two begin to joke. Oh, yeah, I really miss those near-death moments, man. You know, the bean dropped in a basket from a 50-foot-high wall nearly plunging to my death, all because a bunch of people want to kill me moments. Oh, yeah, good times. Saul says with a humorous level of sarcasm. Oh, or being nearly killed in broad daylight after debating with those Hellenistic Jews who didn't seem to like what I had to say moments? Trying to recapture any moments of seriousness, a laughing Barnabas puts up his hands as if to stop the conversation. Okay, okay, I get it. You're not missing the near-death part. So what do you miss, though? Choosing his words carefully, Saul responds. What do you do when you have a direct encounter with the glorified Jesus, when he speaks directly to you and tells you exactly what your mission in life is supposed to be? Is it really possible to ever go back to your old life? Barnabas nods. Coming back to my homeland, I really didn't know what to do. So I first went to what seemed familiar. That's what you do, right? Saul asks. You go back to what you know and explore its validity and see if it has a place in your life. For me, this was easier said than done. After meeting Jesus face-to-face, I knew everything about me changed. My values, my drive, my sense of place. I also knew that both the Jesus community as well as the Jewish community knew who I was. So I had to be careful. I had to lay low. And it's been really uncomfortable. Barnabas responds, I imagine you were seen as the rising star here among the Jewish community. Then you turned against them, at least in their minds. Right, Saul responds. Not knowing how to best approach and encourage the communities, I sensed it would be best to get into my trade work here as a tent maker, all the while seeking God to better understand my next steps. Taking his eyes off of Saul, Barnabas curiously spots three oddly dressed people, one of whom is an outlandishly dressed woman, who slowly are perusing the nearby merchants. With such colorful and uncommon appearance, Barnabas can't take his eyes off of them. Noticing Barnabas's distraction, Saul turns to see the three who are nearby. He sighs and gets up from his chair. Oh no, he says, this isn't good. Looking over at his booth, an impatient Saul excuses himself from Barnabas and walks quickly back to monitor his work area. A confused Barnabas turns to watch Saul leave. He then turns his head back to see the three continue in and out of the numerous merchant booths. The other merchants are on high alert at this moment. What is going on? Barnabas says under his breath. He pays and thanks his server, and he quickly walks over to Saul's booth, frequently turning his head to keep a sharp eye on the three. Arriving back at Saul's booth, he sees Saul keeping guard over his materials. What is happening here? he asks. Barnabas is thoroughly confused. Are we in danger? We aren't, Saul says. It's our merchandise I'm worried about. This seems to settle Barnabas down, somewhat knowing his life is not in danger. How do you know these people are aiming to rob you, he asks in a hushed voice. Do you know them? Saul looks at Barnabas and then returns to the three. Take a look at every other merchant here. Do they seem tense right now? Barnabas sees the others closely tending to their businesses. Very much so, he responds. Saul relaxes his shoulders as he addresses Barnabas. Look, this is a pretty vibrant town, and like Antioch, Tarsus serves thousands of tribes and tongues from every part of the Mediterranean. His eyes diverting to the three once more, Saul watches them move away from them. I don't know if you're aware of this, Barnabas, but prior to Rome's conquest of this area, under General Pompey's leadership, Tarsus was a haven for piracy. Barnabas' eyes widen. Piracy? What do you mean by piracy? Thieves of every kind, thieves of merchandise, but moreover, they are human traffickers. They are like jackals that isolate a weak member in a herd, and once isolated, they pounce. The human trade is a nasty business, and with these guys, Saul points over at the three who continue on their way, these guys are just waiting to strike. But you said General Pompey dealt with this? Barnabas asks with uncertainty. Yes, And no, Saul goes on. While they had greatly reduced the problem of piracy, well, let's just say that the Mediterranean is a big sea, a very big sea with many places to hide. Pointing in a direction towards the coast some eight miles away, Saul continues. Just west of here where the mountains meet the sea, there are a number of coves and places to hide. Most boats stay clear of the area just to avoid the risk of being commandeered. The waters are treacherous to navigate, and it's dangerous to be tangled up with the likes of these folks. Like I said, they are just waiting for the right opportunity to strike. Barnabas doesn't know what to make of all of this. Sounds scary indeed, he pauses to think more deeply. Yet I can't help but feel sorry for these people. If they could only hear of God's desire to transfer them into the kingdom of heaven. Caught by this, Saul softens his glance and looks back at Barnabas. I struggle with this greatly. How do a people who don't appear to have any interest in the things of God receive the message about the kingdom of heaven? That does seem to be the operative wording, doesn't it? Barnabas lets a moment pass before pressing his point. They don't appear to have any interest. Yet, if memory serves, you weren't too receptive, right? My situation was much different than Saul stops. Barnabas waits for him to finish processing. Then, at least I had a hunger for knowing God. Did you, Barnabas quickly replies, or did you see it as an opportunity to hustle your way through a system that rewarded you for your assertiveness, all under the guise of being deeply religious? He pauses to let this sink in. way I see it, you are on the fast track to personal power and glory at the expense of the lives of those who followed Jesus or anyone who got in your way. Saul sighs, and he slumps his head in shame. "'You're right. You're absolutely right.' He looks back at the three and then back at Barnabas. "'I guess my personal agenda was no different. "'I was driven to be placed in a position of high leadership, "'of considerable power among the Jews. "'I wanted to rule.' "'Sounds like a human problem, right?' Barnabas asks while lightening the moment. "'He then pauses to watch them work their way down the street, "'moving from vendor to vendor, ever watchful for an opportunity. "'Really? How different are they? "'They do what they know to do.' And while they're overt about it, are we really more altruistic? Do we really love without the hope of personal gain? Are they completely lost to having permanently changed hearts? Are they too far away from God, Saul? Saul looks at him with new eyes. Can you imagine what would happen if God redeemed the likes of them? Man, that would look like a very different type of Christ follower. Indeed, they would, Barnabas agrees. To be candid, that's why I'm here. Tending to his stack of panels, Saul immediately looks up at Barnabas. What do you mean? You wanted to know why I'm here, right? Barnabas says. Well, I'm here for you. I need you to come back with me to Antioch so that God can continue what he started with you. A curious Saul gestures Barnabas to continue. You know what Jesus has called you to do, right? You've been called to reach and teach the Gentiles, people like them. The first time we met back in Jerusalem, it was one of the first things you shared with me. God was calling you to minister among the Gentiles. Barnabas sees a nodding Saul and continues, I didn't know what to think, outside of the fact that I thought you were crazy. Come on, a Gentile knowing God? Yet after seeing what has happened first with Peter in Caesarea, and recently with me in Antioch, we're up to our eyeballs with Gentiles who are evidencing the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Saul stares off and processes aloud. I've heard rumors, but I had no idea what to think. Tell me, what has happened with Peter and you? Barnabas catches Saul up with both Peter's experiences in Caesarea and Jerusalem. Then he shares his own wide eyed experiences in the household of many new Gentiles gathering in Antioch. My problem? We have way too many infant Gentile believers out there without anyone teaching them. It's a recipe for disaster, I tell you. Yet God has moved way ahead of us, and we have to catch up. Looking intently at Saul, Saul, I need your help. We need to get these Gentiles up to speed to better understand who Jesus is and what he's done. Saul looks around his booth and back at Barnabas. So when do you need a decision? Barnabas smiles. Are you kidding me? like now. Saul laughs. I figured that would be your answer. Pointing back to the nearly completed tent behind them, Saul says, give me a couple of days to finish this and pack things up. He hesitates and lets a moment pass. Then I will come with you to Antioch. Barnabas smiles. You've got two days, my friend. He looks at the job in front of him and smiles wryly. In fact, let me help you pack. Looking around the medium-sized courtyard, Saul roughly estimates a hundred Gentile believers to be present and crammed into the space. They're everywhere, he thinks. How's that guy even sitting on the window sill I, I have no idea. Thinking they can't be comfortable, Saul notices they don't seem to be bothered by it. They're all here to learn, ever hungry to know more about Jesus. Looking back at Barnabas in response to his question, he says, Yeah, that was one of those God moments, you know, the one you just don't understand until well after they have happened. I'm just glad that I'm here along for the ride of a lifetime. Well, Barnabas says, we're just glad to have you here. The crowd cheers in agreement. Look around everyone. God is up to some pretty amazing things right here in the room. Barnabas gleams at the sight in front of him. Looking at Saul and then back to the room filled with people, he continues, While we've been at this for nearly a year now, we need to figure out how to better train you. With so many coming to Christ throughout the city, we need to develop more teachers. So our next step is to have some of you become more comprehensively trained while you lead your community of believers. Antioch and the world around us is ready for a movement of God. And it's up to us to prepare you for the task at hand. Let's break from there, guys. Look, I know this is hard for us to wrestle with. People do terrible things in the world, and they need to be stopped. That much is clear. But there is a tendency on our end to pigeonhole people who are not like us. We want them to be uncomfortable around us, to feel at ill at ease, or not welcome around us. Our goal? We want them to stay as far away from us as possible. Yet, that isn't exactly what God is doing here in Antioch, is it? In fact, those of multi-ethnic backgrounds, many of whom have widely different values, are coming to Christ in droves. Why? Well, first, because God has opened up the opportunity. But second, God's people saw the world through his eyes and decided to do something about it. They sacrificed their comfort and their insulated thinking to reach out with the love of Christ, even if it meant their own peril. It's what Barnabas learned earlier, and it's what Saul has learned here. Want to know how God's kingdom will truly advance? It's when those in the world around us see how we, as Christ followers, care enough to do something to help, even if it might be at our own peril. Can you imagine a world where we, as Christ followers, begin to seek out ways to care for others around us, for those much different than us? Well, that's it for now, guys. Have a wonderful week, and may our Lord open up an opportunity for you to demonstrate His love to others. 1 John 3:16 and through 18 just says it this way. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Have a wonderful week, folks.